Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning, everybody. We're beginning our seventh class on the Shemona Esrei. And I just wanted to begin with a little bit about prayer in general and um, continue reading a little bit from this Rabbi <clears throat> Moshe Grilak, who wrote an article in the uh, Mishpacha magazine many months ago that I just thought had a lot of wonderful and beautiful points about tefillah. So um, he says here, a religious person experiences daily what the man whose prayer is triggered by circumstance, by accident, as it were, experiences only in moments of extremity, extremity. One who prays regularly develops this feeling and lives with it even on the most humdrum days. His spontaneity is not shackled, but guided and nurtured. He disciplines it with regular daily training. One who prays is like a musician who becomes a virtuoso only through years of endless, sometimes grueling practice. Only after he's mastered his instrument do the melodies rising from it sound natural, spontaneous, and full of sublime feeling. Tefillah is a dynamic activity that takes place in the depths of the human soul and purifies it. It is a person's mirror, showing him his true reflection. By means of prayer, he can assess where he is holding spiritually. A short spell of detachment from his work, from the stimuli and pressures of his environment, and from the things he has accomplished or not accomplished, affords him a moment of introspection. The root of the word tefillah means to judge. A person who prays is judging himself discovering the weak links that need repair and contemplating himself from the spiritual height that he actually aspires to reach. So what I want to emphasize in this class, or at least in terms of prayer in general, is that prayer is a discipline. Prayer is a practice. You know, much like people who will not go through a day without doing their yoga practice or their mindfulness practice, or their meditation, or whatever ritual they have in their day that connects them to their uh, inner voice, to their inner self, to that place of quiet and balance. That is what tefillah is supposed to be for the Jewish soul. It's when we when we get accustomed to doing it, when we feel like You know, the same way we feel if we eat breakfast every morning or we eat lunch every morning, certain rituals that we have, when we feel like we haven't done that, we just don't feel, we don't feel relaxed. We don't feel like we are in the groove. So too, that's what tefillah should be in our day, that until we davened, until we said hello to the Ribbono Shalom, until we found that center for for our day that sets us off in the right way, We should have this dis, this unease that something is amiss. And that is, you know, that when, when a person gets to that place, they know that they've made tefillah part of their life. 
part of their living and their breathing, their nutrition. The nutrition of the soul, as we said. The nutrition that the soul desperately needs every single day, much as the body needs food to survive and to thrive. Okay, so we are, <clears throat> we have started with the request section in the Shimona Asrei. Last week, if you remember, we began with the first request, which was kind of like um, a transitional prayer in which we mentioned that Hashem is the one who is the wisest, the one with all wisdom, and we want him to give us and share with uh, with with us that wisdom. And so that bracha is a both a praise of Hashem and the beginning of the request section. And that's why it's the fourth bracha, the letter Dalit, we said, is represents a door. This is the doorway into the section on request. <clears throat> we said one of the um, postures emotionally that a person should have when they come to this section is the idea that the more helpless I feel, the more helpful Hashem can be. The more I come like a doll, like a pauper knocking at the door, asking for everything and recognizing that everything that I have comes from Hashem and that everything I need is in his hands. <clears throat> and when we come with that kind of posture of, I have nothing without you, Hashem wants to give to us. The more helpless, the more helpful Hashem can be. Excuse me, which bracha yes. are you at? Which so we're going to go into the next bracha. I haven't mentioned it yet. I'm still doing an intro, but I'll let okay. you know in a sec. Okay, so this blessing on wisdom, I just wanted to go back to it because it's interesting. In the Haftorah last, uh, this past Shabbos, we read about Shlomo HaMelech. Now, Shlomo HaMelech, one of the famous stories about him is that he became king as a very young, young person. I think he was 12 years old. And when he was about to become king, there's a story that Hashem came to him and asked him, you know, what do you want? I can give you anything that you need in order to be able to be king over Israel. And Shlomo HaMelech, although he was a child, he understood that wisdom is the greatest gift that he could ask for. And the idea is, is that in this bracha, we said the bracha begins with atachonein, and it ends with the word da'at. So it starts with the letter aleph, and it goes to the letter taf. And the idea, again, which Shlomo HaMelech understood, is that if I have wisdom, then I have everything. Okay? Um, so this bracha of wisdom, we said, is the first bracha because when a person has wisdom, the next thing that they're going to understand is the next bracha that we're going to, Renee, which is a bracha called tshuva. The first thing a person's going to ask for is tshuva because the intelligence and intellect that a human being is endowed with leads to self-contemplation and introspection and a recognition of one's own shortcomings. This is what makes us human, is that we are able to change. We are able to improve. You know, I always joke, I used to have a button when, that I wore when I was a teenager that I thought was really cool. And it said, you know, I was born this way. What's your excuse? <laughs> and, and, you know, that was kind of like the, 
the way of thinking in the world that, you know, this is the way I am, like it or lump it, I'm not going to change. <clears throat> you know, I'm okay, you're not okay, right? And <clears throat> it's so refreshing to know that Judaism really believes in our ability to change, in our ability to improve, in our ability to become more of who we can be. And the pathway to doing this is through tshuva. So let's look at that bracha for those of you who have your sitter in front of you. It's the fifth bracha. And by the way, even the order of the brachas and the numbers of the brachas are all divinely inspired by the unshaken Essa Gadola, the members of the great assembly who put our tefillahs together. And we, can, we, we see it more and more as we delve into uh, the meanings of the words, the where they appear in the Shemona Esrei, and other um, things about it. So this is the bracha called Teshuva. And let's just read it quickly. Hashivenu avinu Torah techa. Return us our father. And note the language that's used. Latora techa, to your Torah. The karvenu malkenu. La techa. And bring us closer, our king. To your service, to the mitzvot, to the uh, requirements that we are required as an evident. And return us, another word for return, chazor, return us in a perfect and complete shuvah in front of you. And then the bracha ends with a baruch just like all the other ones. Baruch Hashem, blessed are you Hashem, or you Hashem are the source of all blessing. who desires, who wants to shuva. Okay, shuva is a huge topic. Of course, it's something that takes up, up the whole month of Elul and much of the uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur period. And of course, we could delve into it for weeks and months. But <clears throat> what I want to do is just inspire you and give you a, a taste of tshuva. First of all, I just wanted to read from one of my favorite books I read many years ago <clears throat> called Tshuva by Rabbi Adin Steinzaltz. <clears throat> he himself was a Baal Tshuva in his teenage years. Uh, Oliver Shalom, Rabbi Steinzaltz, died in August 2020 of this year. He was most famous for having translated the Talmud into Hebrew. And um, he was a great scholar in other fields of mathematics and physics and science as well. And I'll just read to you a little bit about what he says about tshuva. <clears throat> tshuva occupies a central place in Judaism and has many facets. Um, as individuals differ from one another, so too do their modes of tshuva. Broadly defined, tshuva is more than just repentance from sin. And this is important. It is a spiritual reawakening, a desire to strengthen the connection between oneself and the sacred. The effectiveness of tshuva is thus frequently a function of one's sense of distance from the sacred. The greater the distance, the greater the potential movement toward renewed connectedness. 
As one Jewish sage puts it, a rope that is cut and then retied is doubly strong at the point where it was severed. So it's actually when we move away from Hashem and come back <clears throat> that we create an even stronger connection to Hashem. And the further away a person goes, like a boomerang or um, yes, like a boomerang, the further to the other side, the person is flung. Um, this movement of the soul toward renewed connectedness can also come about in one who has never sinned, yet who feels called upon to draw closer to holiness. For at the root of the notion of tshuva lies the concept of shiva, return, return, not only to the past, one's own or one's own ancestors, but to the divine source of all being. As it says, you shall return to the Lord your God. Okay, just a little bit from Rabbi Adin Steinzelt, a great thinker who we lost also very recently. <clears throat> So I want to start with a little story. This is a story told by Rav Saadia Gaon, a great rabbi who used to tell his students that they should constantly examine their ways every day. Do a cheshbon nefesh every day, an accounting of your soul, and make sure that they had not sinned. Or if they had, that they should immediately do tshuva on wherever they had fallen short. And the reason why he taught them this is he actually learned this for himself after an enlightening experience that happened to him. He had traveled to a town, he was very famous already, and he had traveled to a town and come to an inn and the innkeeper didn't recognize him or realize what a great rabbi he was and how famous he was. So he put him in a simple room and he served him like any other ordinary guest. Later on, he learned that this rabbi was actually the leader of the generation. And of course, he realized this because all the townsfolk and people from beyond the town were flocking to the inn to catch a glimpse of him. When the innkeeper realized his mistake, he began to cry. He said, oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Saadia, if only I had known who you were, I would have treated you differently. Forgive me, Rebbe. The Rebbe replied, but you didn't do anything wrong. You treated me well. The innkeeper continued to protest. If I had known who you were, I would have treated you like royalty. From this point, the rabbi started to cry. And he said, you've taught me something very important because from your words, I now understand the obligation we have towards the king of all kings. I thought I was serving Hashem well up to now, but now I realize that I'm lacking. Just as your service to me would have changed, you would have treated me like royalty, having known who I am. My service should change based on the more I know of Hashem's kindnesses to me. My service of yesterday is woefully insufficient for what I know about God today. 
In other words, with knowledge, with recognition, with contemplation of the constant kindnesses that God does for us, comes the sense of responsibility to recognize how much we owe the King of all kings and how we are meant to treat him based on our knowledge. <clears throat> okay, so... The letters Yud and He have a significance. The letter Yud always represents Olam Haba, the next world. And the letter He, which if everybody can picture it, always represents this world. And He is the letter of Teshuva. The reason being, as you know, the letter He, I should, well, if everybody sees the letter He, of course, it has a little foot here on the bottom and a Dalid around it. The idea is, is that this world is like the letter hay. A person can fall through the bottom. It's very easy to lose one's way and to fall through the bottom of the hay. However, up at the top of the hay, there's a little entrance place, which is symbolic of the idea of teshuva, that a person can always work their way up and come back in through that little opening in the hay. Now, we can't come back in through the way that we left, right? It's not like we fall out the bottom and we can come back in the bottom, even though that place is so much wider. The idea is that it takes effort to do teshuva and to bring oneself back up and around and back into, so to speak, the world. The world meaning the world of clarity, the world of sanity, the world of direction, the world of connection in this world to the king of all kings, to Hashem. When a person does that, the hay in the Sefer Torah always has a crown on it, the letter hay. And it's alluding to the idea that anybody who's able to do this type of tshuva deserves a crown. He merits the crown of tshuva. The letter He is the number five. Five, of course, are the Chamisha Chumshe Torah, the five books of Moses. And that's why we say, Hashivenu Avinu Torah Techa, that the first step of Tshuva is we're asking our father. It's a father's obligation to teach their child Torah, right? A father is obligated to teach his child how to swim. He's obligated to teach his child Torah. So we're saying to Hashem, you are our father. The way that you will bring us back to you is through your Torah. Torah is Torah study. The hay represents, like I said, the Chumash, the five books of Moses. If you notice in this bracha, it begins with Hashivenu, and it ends with the word Bichuva. So it begins with the letter hay, and it ends with the letter hay. And these two hays represent the 10 days of tshuva, right? We have every year between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we have the 10 days of tshuva. And this is alluding to the fact that this is a time in the year where we are, where it is an opportune time 
more so than any other time of the year, even though tshuva is available to us every day at every moment. It says a person should do tshuva the day before he dies. And of course, the rabbis say, and since a person never knows when he will die, one should do teshuva every single day. And we have a custom to do that at night. For those of you, I'll just, um, here, for those of you who don't know, there's an absolutely gorgeous prayer that we say at night in our beds before the Shema, where basically we ask God for forgiveness not only for what we've done, but for what other people have done to us. And it goes like this, because I'll read it out for those of you who aren't familiar with it. It's in every sitter before the Shema. Master of the universe, I hereby forgive anyone who angered or antagonized me or who sinned against me, whether against my body, my property, my honor, or against anything of mine, whether he did so accidentally, willfully, carelessly or purposely, whether through speech, deed, thought, or notion, whether in this reincarnation or another reincarnation. I forgive every Jew. May no man be punished because of me. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, and the God of my forefathers, that I may sin no more. Whatever sins I've done before you, may you blot out in your abundant mercy, but not through suffering or bad illness. May the expressions of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart find favor before you, Hashem, my rock and my redeemer. So many people have the custom to say this prayer before sleep, sleeping at night. And that can accompany one's own cheshbon of their day. And, you know, just going through your day from the morning until the evening. What I did well, what I need to improve on, how I could have been better, you know, where I'm going wrong, where I'm going right. Uh, at Iyat, where I studied, we used to have to do a cheshbon and nefesh. She would tell us to write five good things that we did that day and three negatives. And of course, you all, always want to outweigh the, the positive because you don't want to give into the yeush, the despair that the Yetzirah tries to bring us to so that we will not do tshuva and so that we will not improve. And, you know, the voice that says, ah, just give it up. You know, you're never going to get it. You you said you're not going to speak Lush and Hara. You said you're not going to get angry at your kids. You said you're never going to yell again and you did it. So just give it up. So we have to be careful of that voice because that voice prevents us from doing tshuva. And so if we say this prayer before bed, it's a wonderful way to wipe everything clean for the next day and to go to bed with a clean slate and wake up the mo next morning like a newborn baby right? Ready to begin again. Great is your belief in me, Hashem. I messed up yesterday. I did things I wasn't proud of, but I'm here to try again. I'm here to start again. Okay, so the hay is the 10 days of tshuva where we, we uh, during those days, we're told to take something on, to do something differently that maybe even after the 10 days, we're not going to keep. But to just say to Hashem, I want to do more. I want to be better. You know, it's not that I'm trying to fool you, Hashem. I want you to know that I, I want it, even if it's not something I'm going to be able to hold on to, even if it's not something that's really me yet. But I aspire 
I aspire, right? We're supposed to ask ourselves, when will my deeds be like the deeds of my forefathers and foremothers? Okay. There's also 15 words in this bracha, and the number 15 is very significant, right? We have 15 steps in the Beis HaMikdash. We have 15 um, ascents, right? Shir HaMa'alot. We have 15 represents the levels until a person reaches God's throne. You know, the idea of I'm in seventh heaven or that there are seven heavens comes from the Jews. We believe there are seven heavens and there are seven spaces between each heaven. And then God's throne above all of that. And this also adds up to 15. So these are the 15 levels that connect heaven and earth to the highest place. And so there's a lot of um, 15s when it comes to the idea of ascending in holiness. And so 15 words in this 15, uh, sorry, 15 words in this bracha alludes again to the idea that tshuva can bring us back to a place of connection, of our very physical selves being able to connect to that which is sacred and holy. And of course, it's our sins that block that connection. It's our sins that impede that ability to have, so to speak, a clear reception, right? Somebody once explained to me way back, you know, about eating kosher, for example, that what's so terrible about not eating kosher? What's, what's the problem? I don't feel sick, right? Uh, of course, there are those Jews that say, you know, I understand why we kept kosher, why we didn't eat chazir many years ago. Well, you know, it was dangerous. It gave you trichinosis. But today we don't have to worry about it. You can only understand kashrut in spiritual terms. You can't understand it nutritionally or in terms of food itself. Because first of all, kashrut is a chok. A chok is a law that we is beyond our understanding. It's in the same category as that we can't wear linen and wool together, okay? Nothing happens to me when I wear linen and wool together. If I try on a dress at the store and I didn't know, I didn't fall down dead, you know, I didn't faint. They said, oh my God, Jew over here, just tried on shutness, didn't know, quick, you know, call Hatzalah. Doesn't happen. And kashrus is no different. The idea of kashrus is that there is a pipe, so to speak, that connects us to Hashem. And when we eat what we shouldn't eat, what we do is we stuff up the pipe. We stuff up that pipe and the reception that God wants to have with us, that clear reception, is now muffled. Hashem, so to speak, can't get through the way he wants to. But we are the ones who do this. This is just an example of any kind of avera that we do. Any time that we, so to speak, disobey the king or uh, don't pay attention to the advice of the doctor. And that's what I've seen. I have a question, if that's all right. Yes, yeah, sure, please. Ask, so what about people who don't have to keep kosher? Non-Jews who don't have to keep kosher. They're obviously not getting blocked. Very good question. Even Hashem. Sure, of course, because the Jewish soul is different than the non-Jewish soul. And what we need in order to have a clear reception is different. 
You know, I liken it to uh, someone who is wants to become a prima ballerina, right? In the in the Canadian National Ballet. So the person who wants to be the prima ballerina is going to be very, very careful with their diet. You know, she can't just eat French fries whenever she feels like it. She's going to be eating celery if she, you know, for dinner, if she, if she cheated too much that day, if her goal is to be the prima ballerina, you know, if you're just somebody dancing in the back and your goals are not as high, so to speak. So, you know, you might be able to get away with eating French fries more often. So again, every single person on that ballet stage is important. But the Jews, I say, are like the prima ballerina. And if we want to have the connection that we are capable of having with the one above, then Hashem gave us more stringent guidelines to be able to be the star ballerina, to be able to be the one who gets center stage and has that pleasure of dancing, right? The main role. So Karen, I hope that also gives you a metaphor. But but, but surely if people who believe in Hashem, but are not Jewish, they still have a connection to Hashem. No, of course they do. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying that because we are Jews, we have 613 mitzvot and they have seven mitzvot. Yes. So we have to have kaleem. We have to have kaleem that are larger in order to to be able to reach our mission, reach our tachlis. And so we are given more uh, restrictions and more pleasures. But of course, a non-Jew can totally reach God to the greatest heights. And we say that the righteous of all nations go to heaven. So we certainly don't believe that you have to be Jewish to have that connection. You know, my husband works for the Basteen and the conversions and you know, they try to talk a non-Jew out of converting right till the moment they're going into the mikvah, you know, to say that you don't have to be Jewish to have a connection with God. So, you know, this is this is intrinsic to Judaism. But Excuse thought, me, just a yes. quick question. What does kalim mean? Kalim are vessels that, you know. That, that, oh, kalim. Okay. Kalim. Yeah. Okay. Thank All you. All right. Um, Please don't hesitate to ask if you have any questions as I go along. So looking back here, bring us our father to your Torah. Torah study leads to tshuva. The words of Torah are what draw a Jew back to God. When a Jewish person, listen, Torah is full of wisdom, right? But Torah is more than just wisdom. We say, yesh hachma begoyim. There's wisdom among the non-Jews, but ain't Torah Lagoyan. Torah is God's mind, God's words to the Jewish people. It contains all the wisdom of the world, but it's more than that. It's how we are able to live with God in this world. And um the words of Torah draw a Jew back to God. The word return us implies, like the word tshuva, that we were already there. How can we return to something that we were, where we never were, right? Return implies that you were there and you're just going back to what you already knew, to where you already were, to that pristine place of 
no Avera, total purity, total connection. And where did we enjoy this? We enjoyed this in the Gemara in Nida teaches us that the angel teaches the entire Torah while one is an embryo in the womb. And because we have this truth and this wisdom from that moment, when we distance ourselves from it, for a Jew, he can never be at peace. He will always feel restless and stumble from one identity to the next until he comes back to his true essence. I think I once mentioned that when I was on my journey towards uh, Yiddishkeit, I remember meeting this very cool Jew in the old city, and uh, he had been a he had been a, a Jew, he had been a Buddhist for many years, and he lived in the old city with his wife, and of course they were both uh, Bale Chuva. and he was trying to express to me. I think I was eighteen, and I wasn't really that interested in finding truth because, as I said, the Yetzirah of a spiritual seeker is. I don't really want to find it because if I find it, then I'm going to have to stop trekking through the world and looking for it, which is a lot of fun and very exciting. So if I find it, that means that now I have to live it and I have to be intellectually honest, as we said, and say, gee whiz, I guess the buck stops here. And now I've got to live this restrictive life, right? Which is restrictive compared to the life I was living. But he once said to me, he said, you know, for a Jew to follow another religion, he said, it's like a banana tree growing an apple on it. It just doesn't fit. It just, it's, it's an aberration. It's, and, you know, it just struck me. And he said another thing. He said, you know, if you have a refrigerator and it's not plugged in, then it's not a refrigerator, it's just a cupboard. But he said, you have to plug in, you have to plug it in for it to be what it's meant to be. And a Jew has to plug into the right source, the right outlet, in order to be able to be vivified and live a life of complete and total um, possibility of fulfillment. Okay. So um, without the Torah, a Jew is estranged from himself. That's what he was trying to tell me. He can never know himself until he knows the Torah. I dug out something that I came across in the Mishpacha, which I think is so interesting. And Karen, you know, I was thinking actually last night, you know, well, what about non-Jews? Do they learn Torah in the womb? I mean, how can we say it's only Jews that learn Torah? Come on, I have to find this. I know it's here. Um, you know, and I think, I, I think, you know, maybe they don't learn Torah the way we learn Torah, but they definitely learn wisdom and the wisdom that they need for life. Because obviously all people, consciences, everybody, Jew and non-Jew, created the Selim Elohim in God's image, know what is right and what is wrong. Now we become desensitized to it. We cover it all. We cover our neshamas with all kinds of layers of filth so that again, the truth and reality and what's right and wrong can't get through. 
but Jew and non-Jew alike know what is right and what is wrong. But listen to this, in, in, in the Mishpacha many months ago, they had a page about doctors and about Jewish doctors and what's the most incredible thing that they learned in medical school. Okay, so this is uh, somebody named Hannah Weinstock Newberger. She's a hematologist and oncologist in Baltimore. And they asked her, what was the most amazing thing that you learned in class? She says, you know, I'm sure my classmates remember this moment as well, especially the firm ones. It happened in the neurology unit in our second year of medical school. We were learning about something called REM sleep. Everybody knows that rapid eye movement, which is a phase of sleep that is accompanied by rapid eye movements and during which dreaming occurs. The professor stated that this sort of sleep is thought to be crucial to learning and to processing new information. As proof, he showed us a graph with age on the horizontal axis and proportion of REM sleep on the vertical axis. The graph showed that infants spend a very large proportion of their sleep in REM sleep, REM sleep, with the percentage of REM sleep dropping through childhood and subsequently continuing to drop even further into adulthood. But this theory makes no sense, he stated. Look at what happens when I uncover the left-hand side of the graph, which depicts the sleep pattern of a fetus in utero. See, the fetus spends almost 100% of its time in REM sleep. And what, said the professor, could the fetus possibly be learning in his mother's womb? Literally, every from student in the room gasped and looked at each other and thought how cool it was that the professor had just displayed in graphic form a depiction of the unborn baby learning Torah with the angel that is appointed to do so. So yes, that one day in one class stands out even though it's almost two decades later. So just a little bit of interesting scientific research to back up the idea that a an, a utero, I uh, sorry, a an embryo in utero is busy having a hundred hours of REM sleep. Okay, we know what happens when we're born, right? The angel touches us here. Our index finger fits perfectly on that place between our nose and our mouth, and we forget everything we knew. And the goal of life is to relearn. And that's why even when you're not religious, when you hear something truthful, you say, ah, I knew that. I knew that. I always knew that. Because truth is something that resonates at a deep place in each one of us. And the other idea of this is that if you're quiet, right, if you put your finger here and you listen twice as much as you talk, right, we've got two ears and one mouth then you'll be able to reacquire all that Torah that you once knew, right? If you're not misknow-it-all <laughs> and you don't, you're not open and receptive to the teachings of truth, because let's face it, you know, like I read you last week, Aristotle, who was considered to be just beneath the level of Ruach HaKodesh, right, by the rabbis, he was considered brilliant 
And they asked the question, well, why didn't he become a gear? Why didn't he do tshuva? Why didn't he come back and want to become part of the Jewish people if he was so brilliant? And they said, because the voice of the body and the body's comforts and the body's need for desires and the human condition of I want to do things my way will always be the struggle against teshuva and coming back to Hashem because it's giving up a certain right independence even though we don't realize that what we gain is so much greater right so much greater but that fear of giving up which is the place that every person who does tshuva, whether you're a bal tshuva from the beginning or you're somebody who grew up religious and wants to do more. You know, not only is it the voices outside of us that say, who do you think you are? Who are you? What are you doing changing on us? This is very uncomfortable for us because it's threatening. Who says you could change? Stop doing that, right? <laughs> um, and then you're not just dealing with the external voices, but you're dealing with your own internal voice, which is even louder, which is saying, you know, what are you doing? How, why are you destroying the equilibrium? Or the Yetzirah, so to speak, is saying, hey, listen, I have a comfort, I have a very comfortable uh, seat inside of you. Why are you kicking me out of it? You know, I'm, I'm in an easy boy chair here. And I'm just smoking my cigar and enjoying myself. And all of a sudden, you're telling me to get out? <laughs> Don't do that. Okay, so tshuva is not easy. Doesn't matter whether you're at the beginning of it or in the middle of it, or you've been religious your whole life. Anytime you decide, I'm going to change, I want to move up, I want to be better, there's always going to be resistance. Expect it. It means you're growing. Just like when you pick up a heavier weight in the gym and it hurts and you want to put it down and you want to go back to your eight pounds and not to the 10 pounds. And you say, this is too much for me. I can't. But you know that the 10 pounds are going to develop you. They're going to make you stronger. No pain, no gain, no discomfort, no growth. That's the way it works in the physical world and in the spiritual world, right? We can coast. We can spend our whole lives saying, looking at everybody else around us and saying, well, I'm better than her and I'm, I can lift more weights than, than that lady in the gym. So I'm doing okay. And we got to be careful of that, right? Comparing ourselves to others. Or we can find mentors and role models and say, you know, I'm going to slowly work towards that. I want to, I want to develop myself while there's, when there's life, there's growth. And this is the place of growth. This is the place of change. It doesn't happen in the next world. This is the world of toil. This is the world of trials and challenges. So it's always good when we choose our own, as opposed to a, letting Hashem choose them for us. When you choose your own pain, the pain of growth, the pain of spiritual betterment, 
then Hashem says, okay, you, you're choosing your own pain. I don't have to throw anything at you to make you grow, right? I don't have to put you in a, in a foxhole so that you'll recognize me or want my connection. You need to do it yourself. And then, you know, you choose your own pain, so to speak. That's something I discovered. Okay, so we said Hashem is our father. He has to teach us Torah. Okay, what about king? Oh my goodness, look at the time. I went so off track. And you should bring us close, our king, to your service. Hashem is called our king in relationship to mitzvah service. First, we need the father relationship, Avinu Malkinu, the love relationship, right? And the Torah, the wisdom of the Torah that just feels so good and resonates with us. Because if we don't have this first, then our mitzvah observance is cold and removed from God, right? There are people who are religious Jews. They go through the motions. There's no passion. There's no feeling. They do it because that's what their parents told them to do. They do it because if you didn't do it, you got a licking and sent to your room, whatever type of uh, upbringing a person has. So they do the mitzvahs, but it's cold and passionless because the Avinu and the Torah, which is supposed to be warming them, is missing. Bring us near our king to your service. Great is Torah study because it brings one to action. It's only by learning that one wants to do right? That's why we list all of the mitzvahs every morning in our morning brachas, right? We say the mitzvah of davening, the mitzvah of helping a needy kala, the mitzvah of, uh, you know, giving tzedakah. But then we say at the end of all of those mitzvahs, we say the Talmud Torah keneged kulam, that the study of Torah is equal to all of them. That if you put all those wonderful mitzvahs on one side of the scale and you put learning Torah on the other, that they're equal. That Talmud Torah corresponds to all of them. Meaning that if you don't learn Torah, you won't know how to do the mitzvahs properly. It's only through learning the Torah that your mitzvah observance will be pure on a higher level with more intention, with more understanding, with more knowledge of the details of those mitzvahs, etc. Asav was buried in the Marata Machpelah. His head rolled into the cave of Machpelah. He's buried with the Avo, with Avram, Sarah, because Esav knew all of Torah, but it was disconnected from his body. It was an intellectual discipline, if you like. It was a, it was a subject in you know, school. He got his PhD in Talmud, but it was completely disconnected from his actions. Okay, then it says, Hashem, return us to complete tshuva. What's complete tshuva? So we have a, a saying in Yoma, in the Gemara of Yoma, it says, only Hashem can help us complete the tshuva process. It's impossible for a human being to do it on their own. We begin it. We begin the process. We feel that regret. We feel that yearning to come back to Hashem. But Hashem takes us the rest of the way because it is miraculous. 
Shuvah was created before the world was created because Hashem knew that human beings were going to make mistakes, that we were going to sin, that we were going to run away from him. And so Shuvah needed to be in place before the world for the possibility of human beings being able to return to themselves and to their creator. So we say he who takes the initiative to purify himself will receive divine assistance. It's that saying that it says, if you open your heart to the size of the point of a needle, God says, I will open it to the size of a banquet hall. You begin the process and I'll take you the rest of the way. So what's perfect repentance? What's considered tshuva shalema? So this is tshuva that we do out of ahava, that we do out of a tremendous love for our creator, right? Something happens in your life, you know, you get a diagnosis that is the complete opposite of what you were expecting. They made a mistake. There was nothing there. How do you feel? Jubilant. You were dovening to Hashem like nobody's business during those weeks when you didn't know. And now you just feel such incredible love and gratitude. And you want to say, oh, what can I do for you, Hashem? How can I show you how grateful I am to you? That's tshuva me'ahava. And it's a much higher level than tshuva me'yira. What's tshuva me'yira? I'm scared. I'm scared. The boogeyman's going to get me. Now, I'm not saying it's not a level. It is a level. If a person does tshuva because they experience a certain fright, God forbid, you know, the, 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 the chance that God forbid the prognosis is going to be negative. And that makes them come back to Hashem. It makes them do tshuva. It makes them say, I'm going to be better. I want to be better. That's good. But the higher level, the tshuva shalema comes from love. Okay. Tshuva me'ahava comes from awareness of God's greatness and goodness and one's own insignificance and unworthiness. Tshuva Meir is, is egocentric. It's done out of fear for self-preservation. Tshuva Me'ahava means that my earlier sins fill me with revulsion. I'm determined to make Hashem the focal point of my life. And not only that, but the Avera that I did, that which I did that was taking me away from God, it actually becomes the springboard for my return. And so that Avera itself is turned into a mitzvah. And that is the greatest type of tshuva, where your Averas are turned into mitzvot and become the springboard for the mitzvot. What's tshuva me'ahava? So it's what's tshuva? Shalema. What's perfect tshuva? The way that it's described is when a person is in the exact same situation, where they sinned before, where they were tempted and they did the act. And now they find themselves back in that same situation. You know, you want to scream, you want to yell. The person triggered you again in the exact same way and you don't do it. And you're able to not to do it. That's considered Chuba Shalema and it's considered very, very, very difficult. And it doesn't necessarily happen after two tries or three tries, it could take a lifetime where we're in the same situation and we don't 
respond to that voice within us that says, I can't take it. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to give in. It's too much for me, whether it's a physical temptation, whether it's a character trait temptation. I always respond this way. I always react this way. This is how I was born. I'm not changing. You know, I was born this way. What's your excuse? <laughs> right? So that's what it is. You're in the same situation, and this time you don't do it. Because the truth is, is tshuva shalema means you want to uproot the source of the sin. It's not just about saying, I'm not going to speak Lashon Hara anymore. It's getting to the source. Why do I speak Lashon Hara? What is it about me that feels the need to put other people down? Well, obviously, there's something lacking in my own self-esteem. There's something lacking in my own sense of my own importance and self-care and feeling good about who I am. Yeah, I can put a Band-Aid on things. I can say I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. And we do say that the external affects the internal. But Shuba Shalem is about going to the source, asking yourself, if I do this all the time, you know, like Dina Schoomaker gives the example, even if something is benign as somebody who's a perfectionist, right? They're a perfectionist. So like, what can they do? It's Shabbos and they just spilled something on their white dress. I mean, and they're going into the Kiddush and they're the, the, the Baal Simcha, you know, they're the, they're the, they're the Bar Mitzvah mother, they're the mother, the mother of the Bar Mitzvah boy. And they've got gravy on their white dress. Like, what do you mean I'm not going into the bathroom and getting soap and towels and getting rid of this, right? I can't walk into the Kiddush. But it's about being able to have that kind of presence of mind that says, this gravy on my dress on Shabbos that I didn't touch because God says no is my symbol of honor. It's my badge of honor, right? But to have that kind of self-control, you know, okay, it's one thing if it's a navy blue dress, okay? And yes, you know, maybe the, 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 the maybe the, the dry cleaners isn't going to get it out as well, you know, but come on, that's a real test. So you're in that situation and you don't do anything and you always would have before, but you've been learning Hilchos Shabbos and you realize, my God, in Hashem's world, this matters, right? This matters. I mean, it matters. It matters as much as if I take a piece of whatever and, and I put something in my mouth that I shouldn't or that I, you know, totally berate another person because I want everybody to know what a creep they are. You know, um, which may be allowed to one person, but to a whole crowd, maybe not. You know, um, so that's Chuva Shalema, getting to the root of it. You know, why is my heart filled with bitterness and malice when I speak Lashon Hara? I have to uproot this, the source, to have Chuva Shalema. Hashem does not desire the death of the wicked, but rather his repentance so he can continue to live, it says in Yechaskel. We ask Hashem to help us humble ourselves, to subdue our Yetzir Hara so that we can do tshuva. Even the most wicked is always accepted with tshuva. 
And you probably all know the story of the executioner. We read about the story uh, in Yom, on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, when we read about the 10 martyrs that died um, because of their teaching of Torah. So I'm sure you've heard the story of Rabbi Hanina, and I'll end with this, that Rabbi Hanina had violated the Roman edict against teaching the Torah. The Romans wrapped him in the Torah scroll that he always kept with him and set it afire. To prolong his agony, they packed his chest with water-soaked wool. To his horrified daughter and student, Rabbi Hanina said, the parchment is consumed, but the letters fly up in the air. The Roman executioner was deeply moved by Rabbi Hanina's holiness. And he asked, if I remove the wool from your heart, will I have a share in the world to come? Rabbi Hanina promised that he would, whereupon the Roman removed the wet wool and put more wood on the fire so that the agony would end quickly. Then the Roman threw himself into the fire and died. A heavenly voice proclaimed, Rabbi Hanina and his executioner are about to enter the world to come. So this is the example that the sages give us in terms of the fact that nobody is ever too far gone to do teshuva. That even the most wicked person, there was a, a very wicked king named Menasha, the king of Judea. He was exceedingly wicked. That's how the um, Talmud describes him. And it was like the angels were arguing with God saying, how can you allow this Menasha to come back to you in Shuva? He's the wicked of the wickedest. You know, we can all think about somebody like that. But we unfortunately, and God says, if I reject him, it will discourage other worthier repent, repent, repentance. It will discourage other people. So to this degree, God goes. So let's just leave with the ending of the bracha. The ending of the bracha is Baruch Hashem Blessed are you Hashem who desires repentance. Who does this bracha refer to? It refers to Ruvain, Yaakov's first son. Because Ruvain, we're told, spent his entire life doing tshuva for the fact that he had done something wrong. Now, the interesting thing with Ruvain is you know, there were other people who did tshuva before him. Adam and Chava did tshuva. Um, Cain does tshuva. But this bracha relates to Ruvain because it says about Ruvain, not, not only that he did tshuva his entire life, but Ruvain did tshuva for a, what he thought was a mitzvah. You know the story that he moved his father's bed after his mother um, after his mother had died. I think his father was um, with the maidservant, and he, or maybe it was after Rachel died, and he moved he moved his his father's bed, and it was considered as if he was in his father's bed. But that's a different topic. But the point is, is he, he, he felt badly for his mother, Leah, who was always considered the less loved. 
of the two wives. And he felt like now that Rachel isn't around anymore, why would you be with a maid, you know, a concubine when you could be with my mother? So out of his mother's dignity and the pain that he felt always his whole life, right? Reuven, he was named, he was named by Leah. What, what was the, what did the name mean? It meant, and God will see my pain, right? God will see that I'm the less loved. So Reuven grew up knowing this, as did Shimon, right? God will hear of my pain. She named her children based on the fact that she felt the less loved of the two wives. So Reuven does this act. And of course, you know, in next week's Parsha, or two Parshas so now, when, when Yaakov's going to be giving the brachas, uh, brachas are really sound more like critiques, criticisms. He says that, Ruvain, you were impetuous, right? That you did this act and you shouldn't have. It was dishonoring me. It was disrespectful. It wasn't your place. You should have talked to me first, etc. But the point is that Ruvain is the paradigm of tshuva because he spent his whole life doing tshuva. And secondly, um, he did tshuva for something that he thought was a mitzvah. So even harder, right, to discover that what you think is a good thing, what you think is the righteous thing, what you think is, you know, what God wants you to do. And you discover that, no, that's not what God wants you to do. You had no business doing it like that. You know, you may have thought you were right, but you weren't being righteous. So that's why this bracha, Baruch Hashem Harotzebi Tshuva, the angel said this in regards to Ruving. Okay, so next week, God willing, we'll begin the Salah Lanu Avinu prayer, which goes together with Tshuva, right? And uh, here it's Hashem, everybody should have a safe and healthy week. And...